0: Hello, I'm Elizabeth Errington, and this is Energy Perspectives. Energy Justice is an emerging research agenda looking to explicitly incorporate ethical concerns into energy systems and the ongoing energy transition. In this podcast, we'll be hearing about this agenda, along with two specific research projects on equity and justice funded by the UK Energy Research Centre, one at York University and one based here at the University of East Anglia. But before we hear about the specific projects, we're joined by Dr Jenkins to introduce the concept.
1: So my name is uh, Dr Kirsten Jenkins. Um, I am a research fellow in energy justice and transitions at the University of Sussex. So energy justice for me um, began in about 2013, um, in terms of my understanding of the concept, and that was in a paper put forward by Macaulay. Um, And they used energy justice there as a policy-oriented tool for understanding the justice implications of energy infrastructure. Um, And specifically, as it's developed on, it's something that's been applied throughout the whole energy system. So looking at the justice issues of uranium mining, for example, all the way through to the justice issues of waste. So it's a concept that's really growing with momentum. And it's a concept that I think um, can group together different... Uh, academic disciplines um, in terms of modelers, economic um, backgrounds, et cetera, and bring them all to the fore of how we can tackle this justice concern together. And it's also something that I think can unite different strands of energy research. So as I might go on to talk about later, I think fuel poverty is fundamentally an issue of energy justice. And therefore, I have a lot of faith in this concept of being able to tackle some of these concerns that are appearing in our society and a lot of faith in the concept to overcome some of the failings of environmental and climate justice, um, which have yet to have any real policy application, some may say.
0: Um, can I ask you to elaborate a bit more on the normative nature of the agenda and um, particularly considering, um, as we know, that, um, that recent content analysis of um, many energy journals uh, would suggest there's a very engineering and economics focus to energy studies. Um, so bringing in normative questions and challenges uh, could be quite a significant shift.
1: Yeah, so I think one of the best ways of kind of understanding that distinction is through a piece of writing by Sovacool and Dorkin, which took place in 2015. And within that, they labeled a number of different things that energy justice can contribute. Um, you'll have to correct me if I get these wrong, but I think one of them was energy justice as a conceptual tool. And the other one was an analytical tool. And then the other one was a decision making tool. And I think that distinction is really helpful. And that, in answer to your question, it shows how we can reveal and reduce. So reveal, um, to begin with, we're thinking of that in the conceptual way of, firstly, what are injustices? How do we understand injustices? What are the discourses surrounding them? It's not necessarily just for an academic to say what they are, but we need to go out into the communities that are being affected by energy infrastructure and ask them to reveal for themselves what concerns them. And that's been part of my own work. And then there's the analytical sense of that as well. So energy justice, as I understand it, has three different elements. um, Distributional, procedural and recognition justice, which make as a sum the entire concept. And so you can use those different tenets to go out into the groups and the communities and say, what are your distributional concerns? What are your procedural? What are your recognition? And therefore, it takes on an empirical and an analytical frame. And then in terms of reducing, this is when we come back to that third piece of writing by Sobhagul and Dorkin, which says it is a decision-making tool. And this points back to some of my earlier conversation on energy policy making. It's something that once we have that level of understanding, we can then create the tools and the methods to tackle.
0: One ongoing project in this area is Equity and Justice and Energy Markets based here at the University of East Anglia.
2: I'm Catherine Wadhams and I'm a professor in the business school. And I'm also a member of the Centre for Competition Policy. So the UK Energy Research Centre asked for expressions of interest in research on equity and justice in energy. And because we've done quite a lot of work on energy markets, it seemed an interesting way to bring that particular perspective into this whole context of equity and justice in energy. And I think we've seen recently... um, in terms of political parties uh, suggesting different ways of controlling the energy market, that the issue of the prices that are charged, and in particular the fairness of the prices that are charged, is very salient at the moment. Uh, And so our own academic interest, the work we had done in the past, for example, on whether or not consumers had switched and why they hadn't switched, uh, the work I'd done on regulation and so on, all that came together, and it was a good opportunity for us to try and bring those different strands together. And what we're looking at as a sort of framework is to think does everybody, is there equity and justice in the access that people have to different opportunities in the market? Do they respond differently to those opportunities? And does that then mean that we have a difference in the outcomes? And so we're looking at that access response and outcomes very much as a kind of framework for the studies that we're doing within the project. I suppose it also reflects the interdisciplinary approach. So I suppose the interesting thing I always feel, I don't know uh, whether you agree with this, is that uh, political scientists or people in that political policy area tend to ask the question why something has happened and legal scholars often provide the information as to how it's happened in terms of legislation or the rules that have changed or the structure that that's surrounding the question whatever it is and the economists are better at saying what has happened and so i see that institutional side which is being led by lawyers very much as how was it that the changes in the energy market were brought about in terms of the legislative structure and the institutional structure? So that's where I see that fitting in with that with that particular pattern. Uh, the other thing to remember is that markets in their purest form uh, tend to be neutral on equity and distribution issues. That's because economists say they have no particular wisdom to offer. They can do the analysis, but they don't have any particular views or um, justification for taking a particular view on distribution. And markets are good at bringing about efficiency, lowering costs, lowering prices for the average. So I think the market idea doesn't sit immediately comfortably with equity and justice, and in a sense that's the challenge, to see what different perspectives of equity and justice and markets might be able to offer in this space.
0: For more insight on the institutional context highlighted by Professor Wadhams, Dr Reader joins us to provide more insight into the findings of the legislative research in this project.
3: Uh, so my name's David Reader. Uh, I'm a Senior Research Associate at the Centre of Competition Policy um, here at UEA. Uh, I'm currently involved in CCP's Ukirk funded project on equity and justice in energy markets. From its origins uh, in the uh, Gas, Gas Act of 1986, uh, it's very clear that the, the number of duties and the range of duties uh, increases uh, by a substantial amount. And uh, it's clear from this list that that in itself uh, is indicative of the complexities that the regulator now faces. Uh, Another particularly interesting point for us has been uh, the presentation of these duties, and uh, this itself has changed uh, with the enactment of the Utilities Act. Before the Utilities Act, there was a very clear distinction between the primary duties of the regulator and those uh, additional secondary duties that it could consider. Uh, With the enactment of the Utilities Act, uh, what we see is the rise of this principal objective, followed by a residual amount of primary duties and then secondary duties, but also a fourth element of tertiary duties. So you can see the complexity increasing all the time in terms of the procedural considerations uh, that the regulator has to undergo. Um, and specifically for us in this uh, scope of considering equity and justice, we're very interested uh, by the form that uh, vulnerable consumers takes within the statute. And uh, this has evolved over time also. Uh, But consideration of vulnerable consumers has always been a part of the secondary duties of the regulator. It's never um, risen over time.
0: I'm Liz Errington, and when I'm not piloting podcast projects about energy, I'm a senior research associate at the Centre for Competition Policy. In the UK Energy Research Centre project, Equity and Justice in Energy Markets, I'm leading a research package which looks at the impact of devolved administrations on fuel poverty policy formulation. Fuel poverty policy is articulated as a really important response to um, households who are unable to afford uh, to adequately heat and light their homes and i think that that articulation brings to the fore some really significant and serious political and ethical questions the challenge for energy policy is that it's traditionally been a really technical area where we'd see engineering and economics come to the fore uh, to evaluate the, the appropriate responses so Fuel poverty would generally be um, articulated as a problem of thermal efficiency of housing, of um, income levels, um, and of the price of the electricity and gas um, or fuel that is used within that household. And therefore an appropriate response to those things would be to build on economic understandings of income and expenditure um, and uh, engineering solutions around energy efficiency. What the energy justice framework can bring is to incorporate the really vital and central understanding that considering income and expenditure and thermal efficiency only responds partially to the significant questions of energy affordability to households. And what it can also highlight is that the political questions and the political response to that problem is incredibly partial in terms of place and in terms of time. So it can highlight that the articulation in policy of a particular problem and therefore the solution to that problem can be highly problematic. And by asking questions around energy justice, particularly in terms of distribution, of procedures, of policy and of recognition, can highlight the gaps in the technical approach. So one of the emerging themes that has highlighted a significant concern for me is a distinction between the rhetoric around rights to energy services that occurs in Parliament and the formulation processes which translate into fuel poverty schemes on the ground. And what my emerging results seem to show is that while there is a really significant commitment articulated um, by policymakers about affordable energy to households, As that gets translated into actual schemes that can make a significant impact to householders, there's a shift from ideas about affordability of energy to households, to affordability of energy efficiency schemes and fuel poverty schemes to governments. And this gets articulated around targeting of particular groups and in a time of austerity that highlights some really significant ethical questions. A further project funded by the UK Energy Research Centre under the Equity and Justice call is based at York University. Hi, so
4: I'm Ross Gillard and I'm a research associate at the University of York and working on a research project funded by the uh, UK Energy Research Centre. Um, I sit within the social policy and social work department um, and I also am enrolled at the University of Leeds um, in the Earth and Environment department there, working on a PhD on climate and energy policy. So the project that I'm working on at York is um, it's essentially a comparative study looking at four different nations of the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and England, and looking at their energy efficiency policies to, uh, to reveal, analyze, and reduce the energy injustices that uh, shape fuel poverty in those countries. Um, We're starting by looking at the national level uh, policy design and how these energy efficiency policies are constructed, how the decisions are made about how they should be funded and how they should work. Um, And then we will be tracing that down through the layers of policy implementation, talking to various different people within and beyond government and uh, who are responsible for delivering energy efficiency to the most vulnerable uh, in those countries. And specifically, we're trying to focus on two vulnerable groups that uh, are considered particularly vulnerable to the effects of fuel poverty. Um, And so that's households where there's someone with a long-term illness or disability, or um, households where someone uh, under the age of 16 so when we get down to to interviewing households themselves about their energy efficiency uh, measures that they've received or not um, we're going to be talking to them a lot about their specific needs and how they feel that's reflected in in policy and schemes for me the biggest addition comes similar to what um, kirsten was saying earlier about the different types of of justice that there are uh distribution procedure and, and recognition um traditionally fuel poverty is thought of uh in distributional terms so thinking about the cost of energy um households level of income and their level of energy efficiency and how that's distributed unevenly across households and across the country um but by bringing the energy justice analytical frame to this um It sort of encourages us to look beyond those distributional elements um, to consider procedural issues around why those distributional uh, injustices occur and how they might get rectified, Um, and also to think about recognition issues around specific households and the specific challenges they face um, when it comes to fuel poverty.
1: I think I've, I've gone to a lot of conferences throughout my time and I've gone to conferences on both energy justice and fuel poverty. Um, and the thing that struck me most was, as Ross kind of just alluded to there, the fact that the energy justice concept or the fuel poverty scholarship can talk to each other so well. Um, so my point about fuel poverty, I think, is that if you sit it within the overall energy justice systems framework, um, it provides a kind of end of life cycle element of energy services or energy use that are sometimes forgotten. Um, And they also, it kind of joins up the dots. So in the UK, I think we look at, or in many countries, in fact, I think we look at energy policy as very siloed. We have energy policy leaning towards nuclear, leaning towards wind, leaning towards the transmission cables, the bit in between that nobody thinks about, and then leaning towards energy policy uh, and fuel poverty at the other end. But very often those things aren't considered as part of an entire overarching system. And therefore, why the decisions we're making about Hinckley Point, for example, which is a very expensive energy technology, aren't set alongside fuel poverty discussions. I've never been quite sure. So I think energy justice provides a really good overall framing to unite those different elements.
4: I think, yeah, makes a really good point about thinking about it uh, in a whole systems approach enables you to get beyond separating it between supply and demand and just thinking about the technical connections between those. Um, for me, I think as soon as you start to do that, you instantly raise a whole bunch of very political questions. Um, and again, immediately the, the questions that are raised are around procedural and, and recognition issues. And um, I think yeah, it's a really useful way to, to sort of open up discussion about political nature of energy decisions rather than just the technical and uh, economic. So if I give you just one example from, from each of the different analytical strands then um, around distribution for us, uh, the key question there for our project was how uh, differences between the UK nations and within the UK nations can be seen with regards to energy efficiency. So they're the kind of questions we're asking are um, how much money each government spends um, on addressing the issue, where that then gets spent within the country as well. Um, and uh, I guess a recurring theme within that, um, which kind of hints at some of the findings, is uh, is that in, in England, um, the way energy efficiency policies are paid for is uh, inherently regressive and uh, doesn't do anything for distributional justice, some might argue, in as much as uh, the money is levied through consumer bills, which hits everybody across the the country um, and obviously hits the fuel poor the hardest. Um, Whereas in the other three nations of the UK, uh, essentially the policies are paid for through general taxation, which is arguably more progressive. Um, So that's a, a familiar uh angle that we, we're taking on the on this distributional side um with regards to procedural justice um that's where we sort of start to focus on the two vulnerable groups that i mentioned uh, and trying to get a feel for how their voice is is represented and heard in the decision making process and also throughout delivery of policies so we're then asking questions around national consultations around policy energy policies Um, at the national level and then also around scheme design at the local level. Um, When you have local government or regional actors putting schemes together, we're keen to talk to people who were involved in that process and find out uh, whose voices were involved and how that played out. And then on the recognition front, um, a key aspect that we're we're looking at there is to what extent vulnerable groups um, Have their their needs and interests recognized, um, and how they experience the process of going through an energy efficiency scheme and getting help uh, dealing with fuel poverty? Um, So, we're interested in sort of the formal aspect there, which is you know, are differences within groups really recognized, um, particularly amongst disabled um, households? That's a particularly important issue. Um, and then on the more informal side, we're looking at uh, their experiences of going through the whole process and to what extent they felt sort of respected and um, if experienced it as a positive, uh, a positive process or not. Um, so on the back of that, those are some of the, the questions that we, we've asked along those specific strands. Um, if I was to try to sum up the findings, um, we're trying to, to come up with a way of, uh, of presenting the findings to collectively. Um, and I think the best we, way we have of describing that at the moment is to talk about um, policy gaps. Uh, so what we mean by that is if you have the national level fuel poverty and energy efficiency policies, uh, and at one level below that, where you have scheme design and implementation, and then you have one more level below that, where we're at household level and energy efficiency measures are being installed and support is being given to households. Um, what we're trying to point out is that throughout those three levels, um, at various stages, there are moments when your poor households and vulnerable groups will sort of get missed out or will, will fall outside of the, uh, that channel of, of policy implementation, if you like. Um, so I think that's how we're going to try and present the findings as they emerge.
1: Yeah. Um, The first thing I would say is that they are overlapping and, in many cases, complementary. I think there are several instances in which you can have distributional justice just because it's necessitated. Um, So, for example, the wind will only blow necessarily in uh, the north of Scotland, typically, is the windiest place I've ever lived. Um, And therefore, the energy infrastructure can't really go anywhere else. So in those circumstances, it's that's really where procedural and recognition justice comes to the fore. Um, it's how we make that um, distributional application fair. And what I would also say about it is it might be quite productive to think about distributional procedural recognition justice in terms of a what, a who and a how framework. And this is something that I've developed throughout my own work. And it's something that makes those kind of normative or fluffy or intimidating for some people um, terms slightly more accessible. So distributional, then, is the what is exactly what are we talking about? Um, Is it fuel poverty, as Ross would discuss, or is it, in my case, typically more oriented towards energy production? The who is obviously who is included, um, but who isn't included? And that's the issue of recognition is where are the vulnerable groups? Um, how do we make sure that the marginalized are represented and then the how is how do we go about physically doing that once we've identified the issue and identify who the issue is affecting so the interaction of those tenants is in itself an exercise of how to make energy policy fair if you follow each of those steps in the right way you should in theory throughout the interaction of all three come towards a just and equitable outcome i
4: think i would echo particularly about, yes, the the fact that they're all overlapping and and interrelated and you can see the effects of one having or having or a lack of one type of justice on the others. Um, And I suppose I've given this most thought within the context of very social and political issues. So for me, in in that context, I would um, probably stick my neck out and say that recognition justice is actually fundamental to the other two, actually. And that without a decent level of recognition of different, uh, different identities, different people, different cultures, different needs, then you'll never have procedural justice. Uh, you could have the best um, procedural and fairest, uh, fairest setup for making decisions, but if it doesn't recognize sufficient, uh, sufficient variety of needs and interests, then it, the outcomes won't be fair. And So, then, so again, the distributional outcomes won't be fair. Um, but I would probably, yeah, be stand, maybe stand corrected if you apply that to material decisions. I'm not sure whether that still applies.
1: i add something to that, actually, because I think it's really important, is within the academic theory of energy justice, some may say, or some have said, that recognition isn't productive, that recognition should be part of procedural justice if done appropriately, um, and that it shouldn't be separated out as a third element. And I think we've just come to a very important point now in saying that it is necessary, because in many ways the UK energy policy, the recognition um, or the procedural element of that, sorry, does forget these groups, and that's why these vulnerabilities occur. So it's only by separating out that different element of justice that you can directly think about it and directly tackle it. Um, So it's more of an academic point than it is a policy point, but I think, yeah, that distinction of distribution of procedural recognition is the most productive format that I can think of and that I can think of applying in practice.
4: My first sort of reaction to that thought is that it raises the sort of long-standing issue of whether or not thinking about fuel poverty as distinct from poverty more generally is a useful distinction to make. Um, and I think there's a really strong argument that it is within the context of energy, efficiency and energy policy as your main sort of area of interest so if you're an energy policy maker and you're concerned about people's access to adequate levels of energy service then fuel poverty is quite a useful way of thinking about technical and economic challenges around that Um, and it makes a lot of sense and it is can be considered distinct from general policy because it includes all of these as kirsten was saying complicated supply and demand issues around um however um as i sort of alluded to in one of the findings that we we're sort of coming across um, which was that um you know tackling poor energy efficiency in a home alone is not necessarily enough to lift somebody out of fuel poverty and out of their situation of vulnerability or deprivation however you want to describe it um would suggest that if that was your main policy goal i reducing a household's vulnerability, improving their quality of life, um, and addressing much wider social equity issues, then fuel policy is a much too restrictive framing for thinking about doing that. Um, And so for me, I would start to look much more widely at the social policy literature um, and the wealth of stuff that's been written on issues of vulnerability, social inequality, and um, identity politics.
1: Um, I think that... Yeah, recognition justice in this context provides a way of conceiving about the things that may otherwise be forgotten. Um, so it makes the energy efficiency policy, as Russ has just said, more human-centred. Um, it makes visible the element that's missing. It's beyond the technical to think about the actual implications on the lives of people, whether it be health, access to education, um, financial implications, etc. And therefore, thinking of um, justice as recognition can help us Think about difficult choices. Um, But what I would also say is that there is a tendency to assume that the recognition should always be on people that are the most vulnerable. And I think in some ways that is misrecognition in itself. Um, There are beneficiaries to every energy choice. There are beneficiaries to every energy efficiency measure, measure, whether it be those who have the most access um, or the companies themselves that develop it. And that should all be weighed up as well to think, where are the winners and losers in this entire energy system? And therefore, what is most fair? It's not necessarily just who we need to rescue, but how we can redistribute those benefits. This is my biggest overriding question at the moment. Who is enacting energy justice? Is it the government? Is it business Um, or different organisations, be it NGO or, again, government affiliated? I think there needs to be a far bigger push towards asking questions about responsibility for energy justice and therefore again taking it back past academic discourse and i also think we need to be conscious of doing that fairly quickly Um, on a daily basis we're making uh energy choices across the globe which have huge implications both in terms of their um climate contributions but also as we've said in their justice contributions whether they be positive or negative so we need to mobilise this concept rapidly so that it becomes integrated at the point that we can make renewable, just, productive change. These podcasts were
0: made with the assistance of students on the Humanities Foundation Year Media Technologies module, namely Anna Wormold, Poppy Frost, Evie Howarth, and Simone Chalkley. They were recorded in the studio in the Humanities Media Centre at UEA by Stephen Bennett, lecturer in humanities in the Interdisciplinary Institute for the Humanities at the University of East Anglia in Norwich.